latest Skeptic Teachers interviews with experts on topics related to data science, all through the eye of scientific skepticism. Lewis Lee is a PhD candidate of civil and environmental engineering with a focus on transportation engineering. His data visualization work has helped people understand complex topics like why public transportation buses seem to arrive in clumps, and his published research spans topics such as land use planning and congestion pricing. It's the topic of congestion pricing that I specifically invited him on to discuss. Lewis, welcome to Data Skeptic. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Maybe to start with, could you give us a definition of what exactly is congestion? It's kind of a cluster concept, I think. It's kind of more like you know it when you see it. But Mm -hmm. I guess in the most general way, it's conditions where a road is much below its free flow speed, where the cars are actually impeding each other's speed. Within congestion, there's kind of two types of congestion or regimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is what you might call light congestion or what some engineers just call congestion, which is the density, the number of cars per, let's say, kilometer. As it rises, the uh, speed falls, of course, but the, the overall flow which is what you would measure going past you, increases as the density of cars increases. So that would be like the road's just getting more crowded, but more people are moving. And then you've got another type of congestion, which is sometimes called heavy congestion, or or I like hyper congestion because it denotes that it's more extreme, where um, actually less cars are moving the more crowded it gets. And uh, hyper congestion is what you see usually in networks like uh, in a downtown There's more cars on the road, but less people are getting where they're going. Is there a well-understood science for why that's the case? I feel like everyone's been in a traffic jam, and maybe we all have our pet theories about why it's caused. Is this a well-agreed-upon, are causes of slowdowns well-agreed-upon, or is this an area of active research? There's a lot of debate. There's kind of like classical traffic flow theory, which doesn't get too far into the details of like how congestion occurs. It focuses more on like how it initially begins or how we go into the congested regime. It more looks at like the fact of the statistical relationships that you would observe with the detectors that we have. In addition to that, you have more exotic physics theory. I say physics theories. They're all traffic theories and they all involve physics, but these ones tend to have come from the physicists a lot and they'll have to do with like kind of uh, analogies between uh, cars and particle systems or mm. things that you observe in nature there's your that's kind of the answer is you've kind of got your tra- your classical traffic flow theory and uh, your your more particular more fine-grained and uh, less I would say less established garden of physical th- physics theories You had mentioned detectors. Uh, What are some of the ways that we can take measurements of congestion? In the old times, they had these kind of tubes that would go in the ground. When you drove over them, they would blow air onto a system that was like over uh, on the side of the road. And and that's kind of how it would measure car going over it. Mm -hmm. Pretty much the same concept. You have inductive loops. Uh, where they can detect when a piece of metal goes over them. And then they are also attached to roadside devices that will you know, be linked into some kind of network. They are reliable, but they break a lot. Those are all over California. Mm-hmm. The California Freeway Network is the most instrumented network in America. More recently, you've got like these kind of magnet-type things that are smaller, and they can just be buried in the pavement, and they're more reliable, and they have wireless transmission. They don't have to connect to the side of the road. And then you've also got cameras. Maybe moving forward, uh, you've got cameras that can uh, use computer vision to actually count cars. And something like that, I believe, is more going to be in the future. Then you've got cell phone data. 
And then you've got probe vehicle data, which comes from people that have agreed to have their vehicles tracked, especially uh, trucks or delivery vehicles that are in relationships with these companies who uh, give them data and take data from them, mm-hmm. like subscription services. Then finally, you've got, uh, this is a pretty active area of research, how to just infer conditions from cell phones, which is very tricky because like a lot of it has to do with just the stuff that the cell phone get, gives off anyway and like triangulation and things like that. And I'm not an expert at that, but my impression is that that has been disappointing in the past as far as its accuracy. Then you've also got people that agree to have their cell phones used kind of to turn their vehicles into probe data by transmitting GPS coordinates. Have you worked specifically with any or all of those different data sets? And can you talk about some of the challenges around uh, maybe data cleaning or how noisy they are? I've worked with the data that comes from the system called PEMS, Mm-hmm. which is a system that uh, comes from Caltrans, which is like in California, it's our Department of Transportation. And it is very extensive, but I would say there's a few problems with it. It's very extensive and it's definitely better than nothing. And you can get a lot of good data out of it, but the detectors often fail. And so like sometimes in the middle of the week or something that you're interested in looking at, the detector just goes out or maybe it goes out partially. Like you've got some lanes, but not other lanes. You've also got the fact of where the detectors are placed they're placed like, let's say, a few kilometers apart. What you want to see is like a queue build. You want to see like how long is that queue. By queue, I just mean a line of cars that are all in the same traffic state. Like they're all, you know, you're in bumper to bumper traffic. Mm-hmm. And you want to see like how that queue spills back and how far it goes and such. Well, if you're only taking measurements like every kilometer or something, then you can't really see it except like when it passes a certain level. That's a big drawback. So if I control the city, I think one of my objectives would be to reduce congestion. Most infrastructure, I think, is pretty fixed or long-term planning in terms of building new highways. So maybe we'd want to yeah. do that smarter, but uh, it's, it's tough. Are there other ways I could potentially gate my traffic that could have a, a net positive effect for my city? You're going to be looking at kind of like two or three types of roads, and they have really different problems. So you've got your freeway congestion. Unfortunately, there's not tons that you can do as far as control on there, except you can put ramp meters on it. Most people in big cities in America, I think, are familiar with ramp meters where you just there's a light at the meter and it tells people when they can go. Uh, so you can do that to control your freeway congestion because freeways don't have traffic lights, so that's not really a problem. Then you've got um, your arterials, like your, your big roads that do have traffic lights, and you've got your um, regular city streets. Especially on the city streets, it's a real big area of research as far as algorithms to come up with better signals or just rules of thumb to come up with better timings. Like how much green time, you've got different variables that, that you've got. If you've got two roads coming together, you've got different variables like how much green time are you giving to each direction? How long is the cycle? What I've worked on is the offsets between cycles. Like if you've got a series of traffic signals in a row, have you ever been on a road and then like it turns green and then you just get a whole bunch of greens in a row? Mm-hmm. Well, those are forward offsets. They're designed to let you go fast, not ever have to stop. To answer your question, if you control the city, probably the most fine-grained control that you have is how you control those traffic signals on the city streets where you can make a really big difference. So I've been a fan of some of your work. I don't know if I should call it data visualization or simulations or... We, we call them visual explanations a lot because uh, oftentimes they don't really have data in them. They're simulations. 
Yeah, I think that's a good term. There was one in particular I was playing with, the the one that kind of allows you to control some of that, that ramp metering. And I came in very skeptical, being a Californian, you know, thinking like, I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced that these meters actually benefit me or benefit the roadway. But the simulation seems to be pretty strong in suggesting that that is an efficient tool. Did you know that going in or was that a result that emerged out of just building that simulation? Well, I knew that going in because that simulation was a rebuild. It was like kind of an update of one that was made a long time ago in Java. There was an old, not very modern looking version of it in Java, and I wanted to make it for browsers. So I knew it was going to work. One thing about the, the ramp meters in that, the gridlock that you see is really the type of traffic that you see on city streets. The overall effect is not exactly similar to what ramp meters on freeways do, but it is similar. So what it really demonstrates is like mainly that if you could somehow control different signals on city streets, then you could prevent gridlock and raise the exit rate and the flow and such. So I guess in that way, even though it, it does look like a big freeway and ramp meters are most often on freeways, but a big area of research now is actually applying the same principles of ramp metering to city streets. For example, like if there was tons of congestion in Soma, south of Market Area in San Francisco, and you knew it, if you had detectors on all the streets, which they don't, and you knew it in real time, then you could go, I'm going to cut off or I'm going to make it harder to get into Soma. I'm going to make it, I'm going to give less green time to the signals that go into Soma in the direction of going into Soma. And I'm going to allocate more green time to people going around or people leaving. The same principle could be applied to city streets to prevent gridlock. Usually you don't have the exact same gridlock phenomenon on freeways. And that's one of the frustrating things about freeways is that they are more susceptible to the type of bottleneck congestion that you saw than city streets. But, you know, there's still a lot that you can do with the ramp meters on freeways. Maybe this would be a good time. I'll have it in the show notes, but we could drop in. Where's the best place for people to check out some of your simulations if they want to go and experience them for themselves? I have a lot of links on my website, lewislee.com. And then also they've got the older website, uh, Satosa.io, although it needs to be updated. Uh, Satosa is spelled S-E-T-O-S-A dot I-O. That has uh, uh, visualizations from me and from uh, my partner, Victor Powell. Yeah, I think the traffic waves one is also there, which I found really interesting and I found myself yeah. kind of uh, spending a lot of time with. Could you describe what that one is? I said that there's in some ways like two types of uh, thinking about traffic. And that one is, this one is very much like kind of a physics theory. Mm -hmm. It's based on something called the intelligent driver model. And this would explain kind of like the formation of congestion and per very small particulars of it. What this one does is that you've got very dense traffic, like unsustainably dense traffic. And then um, in that kind of regime, like this is an unstable equilibrium, like unstable state. If one driver taps on the brakes, because of the way that we decelerate faster than we accelerate and that we have reaction times and such, it creates a situation where each driver behind the first one has to slow down more and more mm -hmm. until like, even a very small initial disturbance can create a traffic jam. Yeah, it's. Uh, I hope it. I don't uh, make it seem any less intellectually or academically yeah. valuable when I say it feels a little bit like a game because I think it's, it's really – worthwhile simulation but it's also kind of fun to play if you will because you can control yeah. the traffic and i feel like i i can almost get it back on track if i control the vehicles just right uh -huh. but there seem to be these these patterns it slips into like there's a strange attractor in the system or something like that yeah. um are, are there studies of like emergent properties that work like that given that it's physics simulations to be honest that part of traffic flow theory like isn't 
other than I made this visualization, but that's not really like my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. So these are like based on car following rules, they're called, Mm -hmm. like uh, models of driver behavior. And uh, this one's called the intelligent driver model. This one I think that is pretty popular, came from Germany. But yeah, I mean, there's a huge literature on all that and how the waves propagate and things like that. So getting back to ways in which we might alleviate or just control congestion, another, I don't know if it's popular, but certainly worth consideration, another way we could do it is with congestion pricing. Could you walk me through what that is and and maybe some of the common implementations? Yeah, so congestion pricing is also kind of like an umbrella term to describe a big family of solutions that all try to make people pay and buy that somehow control uh, demand for road space in such a way as to alleviate congestion and speed up traffic. So you've got a bunch of different types of it. So in California, we have like the SR91 express lanes down in Orange County. They were kind of the first implementation in the United States, I think. Um, It's a kind of a, a privately financed toll road down in Orange County. And that one, it's like you've got lanes next to the freeway that you can pay to go into or if you have a high occupancy vehicle like if you have i think three or four or more people in the car you can go in there for free that one tries to it modifies the prices over time in order to keep traffic at some target speed so it kind of like modifies it and i don't know about that one but there, there's it's been replicated across the u.s the express lane or value lane or uh, hot lanes concept and some of them change their prices in real time. Others have like uh, schedules, I believe. But that's a very popular approach because they build them next to regular highway lanes or they convert existing HOV lanes that are perceived as being underused. You don't have to take road space away from people that are already used to having it for free. So that is and will probably continue to be forever the most popular implementation of congestion pricing in the United States. Uh, is the, this idea of pricing some lanes next to it. Then you've also got just pricing the whole thing uh, or taking a tolled facility, a, an existing tolled facility, such as the Bay Bridge, and then staggering the prices. Like the Bay Bridge, I think, has probably always been tolled or been tolled for a long time, but then they started varying the prices. It's a little bit more expensive to drive at rush hour on the Bay Bridge than at other times, although whether the difference is big enough to achieve much result, I'm kind of skeptical. That prices the whole facility. There's no options. They don't really vary the prices in real time because people don't have a free option. They, I think they'd be pretty mad if their only option had its price varying. That's why these uh, mm. express lines are able to get – a lot of this has to do with politics, you know, backlash, avoiding backlash. You've also got finally downtown congestion pricing, which I call zone pricing. Other people call it area pricing. It's where you take a segment of the downtown and you charge people in some manner to go into it, to use the streets of the downtown. Not particular links of the downtown, not like, oh, I'm going to turn left on Market Street, and so I'm going to pay this price, and then I'm going to turn right on Montgomery. It's like you pay in some way to use the downtown, and that could just be you just pay to enter the downtown, or it could be that you pay for the amount of time you spend in the zone, Mm -hmm. or it could be distance traveled in the downtown. So far, all of the systems that exist charge you just to somehow drive in the downtown, typically to cross a cordon going inbound or outbound. But in London, actually, they have cameras all over the zone itself. So even if you just started your trip inside and you drove across the zone, I'm kind of, these are probably details. But anyway, those are three types of pricing. You got the express lanes, you got the whole facility pricing, and then you've got the downtown congestion pricing. And then also there's dynamics. You can either vary prices in real time. You cannot vary them at all, like in London or Milan, or you can vary them according to a set schedule like they do in Singapore. 
So when uh, we get into variable pricing, I presume that's done hoping that the, the market will have an effect, that you know if the price is high at a particularly bad time, maybe to save money, I'll schedule around it in some way. Yeah. But then at the same time, I think about my own driving and I go to work, I have to get there at a specific time. Maybe I go to meetups. Those also start at a specific time. Mm -hmm. Everything's sort of deadline driven for me. So I feel like my personal behavior won't change. And that could be an argument for it being ineffectual. But what does the actual data tell us about these schemes? The majority of people for a good deal of their travel will not change their behavior at any politically feasible level of the price. However, people are very diverse. And actually, the same person is very diverse during the course of their own life. Once you have kids, your willingness to pay for time goes up a lot. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're like a single mother, then your, your willingness to pay for time, you would accept a very high toll for the ability to save time. So faced with the option between driving in the free lanes and sit and you know sitting there for a long time and then choosing an express lane at different times of your life you will make a different decision. Daniel Kahneman has this idea called the representativeness heuristic where they try they think of a body of something by its most representative member or something like that and I think that's typically what people do and that actually does well describe the typical driver who is very unable to change their behavior however there do exist drivers who can change their behavior and will change their behavior for reasonable levels of prices it's kind of interesting actually like like in Sweden in Stockholm for example the the toll is just not very high relative to the other cost of driving there. It, it maxes out at about $6. And yet still, like it knocked off like 15 or 20% of all the inflow through that area. Some of it had to do with people switching to transit because they have good transit there. But a lot of it just had to do with like people that were like, yeah, I don't really feel like paying. There's a, you know, like 15 or 20% of the flow. That's not like a, a representative. Um, those aren't going to be the people that are stereotypically driving into downtown Stockholm on a given day. But if those people stop driving, there's a significant improvement in conditions. So even, you know, a small percentage kind of on the fringe or people in situations you wouldn't normally think about if they stop driving, there's still a huge improvement. Much as I don't think my behavior would change too much economically these days, there was a time, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I was still in grad school when, uh, in a coincidence, gas got extremely expensive. And I yeah. remember telling, you know, one friend, I was on the south side of Chicago, he was in the North Burbs, I said, like, yeah, I don't know if we can be friends anymore, this is just costing <laughs> too much. Yeah. Uh, so, with that in mind... I, why couldn't we use, uh, you know, I like simple solutions. Why not just tax fuel? You're coming into like zone pricing, we have to set up sensors and establish yeah. a pricing scheme. What advantages do we gain over something simpler like just a fuel tax increase? Well, the fuel tax is an effective way to get people to drive less. But the issue is that most people on most of their trips are not really causing congestion. Uh, so if you raise the fuel tax, like consider like so many miles traveled are between they're on freeways, they're between cities, they're in the suburbs, they're just, even in the downtown, you just drive around San Francisco at 9 o'clock, you're not causing anybody any problems. Mm -hmm. To get to the level of fuel tax where it would make a dent in congestion, which is a problem with peak travel primarily, you'd basically be, I wouldn't say punishing all these people, but you would be getting people to cancel trips that really have no great social cost, that they really don't hurt anybody. It, it would be kind of pointless. It, and, and in order to discourage the peak hour travel by the amount that you want, it would have to be a pretty significant increase in the fuel tax. Mm -hmm. The trips that people quit when you raise a fuel tax will be their discretionary trips first. Yeah. It might be a retired person. Let's say there's like a grocery store near their house that doesn't have as good a selection. 
typically they drive across town or something, but now it's like, eh, it's not worth it. So they go to the one near their house. Maybe that trip didn't even go through the downtown. So what was the point of discouraging the trip? The fuel tax is probably, it's a really good way to like reduce pollution and to reduce fuel consumption, which is another big issue. But it's definitely not politically feasible, and I don't think it would be good to raise it to the level that it would alleviate urban congestion very much. If you go to France, you go to Paris, they got congestion. They have uh, really bad air pollution and stuff, but their fuel tax is very, very high. So I recently enjoyed your paper, Distance-Dependent Congestion Pricing for Downtown Uh, Zones, and I'll, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well. One of the things I thought was really informative about it is it's a good survey of cities that have rolled out some of these zone based pricing. Yeah. Um, It was interesting to me to to hear some of the results of how those worked, but I also wonder about how well they generalize. I'd mentioned I'm, you know, originally a Chicagoan, and in my opinion, it's a a marvelously engineered city in that it's a nice grid, Mm -hmm. partially thanks to that fire. I hope that's not too politically incorrect to uh, be grateful for that. But now I live in L.A., which is heavily dominated by geography. We have these things called mountains here that I didn't know about before that, Uh you know, there may be one and only one road to get from A to B. What can we learn from the existing zone-based pricing systems that will generalize if it's true that maybe every city has its own nuances? It can be pretty good to implement your system using a technology that is flexible. The cities are so different that you learn something as you go. So that's one way that Singapore uh, has really excelled. When they set up their system originally, it was actually just it was very flexible because it was just people standing around checking to see if you had a piece of paper that you would stick in, your, in the front of your car. So they were able to modify prices and modify the boundaries of the zone a whole lot as they got data and everything. And then after like 20 years, they upgraded to an electronic system, but it was an electronic system that used these gantries and they were able to move the gantries and to put uh, gantries, I mean, these like pieces of these metal archways. Mm -hmm. So they were able to like put the gantries in this place or that place and to move the zones around as as needs arose. Uh, So it was a very flexible system. In uh, London, by contrast, like I said earlier, they have a camera-based system that specifically has cameras all throughout the zone. They originally started out with one charging zone, and then they decided to expand it all at once. To uh, They ad- added this thing. They doubled it in size called the Western Extension. And it ended up being very unpopular and not really achieving many results. And because they had cameras everywhere, it was very expensive. And so then they abolished it after a few years. If you look at an evaluation of the London congestion charge, Financially, it's been a disappointment, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that they they had a design that made it so that to expand it involved a lot of fixed costs, sunk costs. Uh, It wasn't exactly a flexible choice there. And other things like one of the reasons Singapore is so flexible is that their road network, it's not like Chicago or something whereby there's just tons of streets that intersect and there's a million ways to get into the downtown the city is so new that the road network relies a lot on like kind of more arterials and such like stuff like that. So it doesn't take that many gantries to toll like a, one of the world's great cities. Stockholm is on an island. It's being discussed in New York City, in lower Manhattan. Also, very few access points. Mm-hmm. San Francisco, great place to do congestion pricing because so much of the traffic comes in, you know, over the bridges. So there you've got some natural bottlenecks that you can toll off. That's a very important consideration is the number of access points to the downtown. The Stockholm model was essentially copied over to Gutenberg, and they tried their best, but the Gutenberg system requires a lot more tolling gantries than the Stockholm one because their downtown isn't on an island or anything. It's just a regular downtown like you would see in a normal city. You go from neighborhoods into downtown, so they had to put gantries in residential neighborhoods 
to keep people from cutting off the freeways and going through the gantry, I mean, going through the residential neighborhoods. And that made a lot of people mad. Mm. One of the things that caught me by surprise, I found really interesting in that paper, and I'll quote you say, uh, exemptions, uh, which I guess things like the carpool lane or, you know, multiple passengers can ride for free, things like that. uh, Exemptions undermine the efficiency of a scheme if the marginal benefits of travel are lower for exempt users than for others. Why is that? The systems that have taken place, like, in my opinion, have way too many exemptions to the point that only a small fraction of the traffic winds up being actually tolled. So, Mm -hmm. like, in London, the taxis are not tolled. But that's a lot of the – if you walk around London and you look at the cars, that's a lot of the traffic. And in Milan, delivery vehicles and and, uh, in the early days of the Singapore system, taxis were also exempt. I think that Mayor Bloomberg's proposal for New York City exempted taxis as well, the one that failed in 2008, there's no particular economic rationale for treating a taxi trip differently than a, a regular trip or a delivery trip or something like that. And in fact, delivery trips, they cause a lot of congestion, or they can, depending on what type. Has there been any work studying how the things like the taxi exemption in London affected taxi usage before and after the zone pricing? Oh, I don't know about rides, but for flows, they went up. Uh, Mm -hmm. So the number of taxis going in there every day went up a lot. There's two effects there. One is that they're not told, so maybe some people take a cab before they didn't. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's easy to drive around in London all of a sudden because so many of the cars, the private cars left, so the traffic's moving more quickly and it attracts taxis. Is that considered a win in general in terms of uh, improvements for the city? I mean, I don't think that taxi or ride-sharing service is particularly like a social good, I mean, or a social bad. It's just another way of moving, of being moved around. It causes traffic just like regular cars do. What the London system did do that was nice was that it, it allowed them to reallocate street space to buses and to like special lanes and such like that and to bike lanes and things like that without lowering their speeds. If you look at London now, the traffic is actually not that much faster than it was when they started the scheme because over time, over the 2000s, traffic got worse. It started out a huge improvement and it slowly got worse. But that kind of masks the fact that they took street space away from Mm. cars. So basically they have the similar speeds as they did. It's it's still an improvement, but it's, it's not a massive improvement. But what they did get was similar speeds. Lots faster buses, a lot more people using the buses, better facilities for bikes, much safer streets. There's this new paper that came out about the number of traffic accidents and traffic casualties saved, and it's pretty significant in London. Well, that raises an interesting question. Uh, we could optimize for safety. You've are, you've mentioned earlier maybe we could control for pollution or for travel time. There, yeah. I actually made a list before this. I came up with about 15 different ideas of what we yeah. might try and optimize for. In general, what's best for a city, or is there even a notion of best? There is no notion of best, of course. It's, it's going to depend on the, what the leaders of the city want. Have you ever heard this idea of like whatever you measure, you're going to get good at? I think they say that in startup community. I think that's pretty true that most of these systems, the easiest thing to measure is the number of people going into the downtown. Because once you set up the system as part of charging people, you're measuring that. That tends to be like what it gets graded on. And then also you can measure speeds on the city streets. That's probably what any system in the long run, regardless of its goals, is going to end up doing because that is always associated with the more ethereal goals that you might call touchy-feely, even though getting killed by a car isn't a touchy-feely experience. The fact is 
or air pollution or something like that, you don't measure those with equipment and receive daily feedback on whether or not this toll is doing its job and such. So I think over time, they're just all going to pretty much target speeds or traffic flows. I imagine making changes is difficult. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times there are political reasons. There could be other reasons of just confusion and, and the cost of rolling out changes. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, can we really do data-driven pricing and zone pricing and things like that? Or do we have to buy into a model and trust it and roll it out and maybe make annual changes or something like that? The hot lanes and the express lanes, they often will, they're measuring speeds and flows in real time, and they are updating based on real data because that's just not that difficult to measure on a freeway, on a big lane. It's like, how fast is the traffic going? For downtown congestion pricing, it's a bigger issue because like, you might ask yourself, like, what does it mean for the speed in downtown? Like, what is the speed of downtown San Francisco? Well, you've got Market Street, <laughs> you know, you got other streets, like, uh, what counts? There's not as apparent of like a single metric that you would modify. And for the downtown pricing, one of the things is that you can't have free lanes. It's not like when you drive into downtown, into lower Manhattan, you can have like this half of the lanes are free and this half are told. (laughs) That's not feasible. So you're probably not going to be able to modify in real time because people have already started their trips. There's no real point. The whole idea of like modifying in real time on the express lanes is that there is a free option. And so you're trying to get people, if it's crowded in the paid lanes, you raise the price and people go into the freed lanes. Uh, with the downtown pricing, the promise of real-time pricing, I think, is, is not as great. I imagine rural Kansas doesn't need zone pricing or things like that. <laughs> what yeah. are the criteria we can use to establish what uh, metropolitan areas would benefit from these systems? So it's expensive. There is a fixed cost to running the system. So in order for that to be socially worthwhile, you would want to have, first of all, like pretty bad congestion and a lot of people that you can spread the cost over so that the cost per person, you know, isn't very high. Another criteria, it would probably be like a, a high value of time. And one of the main points is to save people time. If you are a very poor city, perhaps saving your citizens time isn't something that you would want to use discretionary money for maybe you'd rather invest in your take that money and invest in your citizens health or something Mm -hmm. or maybe like the tolls that worked would not really even be enough to cover the cost of the system i'm not sure if that's feasible but that's you know that's a possibility and then also geography is a big one the reason the london one is so complicated is that it's just kind of in the middle of london which is a very old street with a lot of circuitous routes and stuff Whereas it's very easy to put it, like I said earlier, it's very easy to put it in San Francisco, Manhattan, or Stockholm, or something like Singapore. So just to summarize, I think that geography, uh, your value of time, or what your priorities are, uh, also just the scale of the problem. In a lot of cities in America, a lot of the traffic is on freeways and among suburbs and stuff. So it might not really be a social priority for you to relieve specifically downtown congestion. Are there any publicly available uh, data sets that the transportation research community thinks are, are useful and novel that maybe a data scientist should take a look at? I would recommend PEMS, P-E-M-S. And it's called the California Performance Measurement System. Uh, you have to request a login. I think you have to give them a reason that you would like it. Yeah, you have to apply for the account. And then I, you, I think you find out, yeah, you find out in one to two business days. And uh, there is tons of data on there, and it's very interesting. Uh, the interface is sometimes like a little bit tricky to use. It can be hard to download a lot of data at once, but if you're willing to use some elbow grease, you can get a lot of really really interesting data. And and I've seen that uh, some like there was like a 
Some machine learning classes use uh, PEMS data as their sample set. Another popular one, I think, for machine learning classes is this uh, DC bike share data. I did a machine learning class, and um, yeah, we used the data from the DC bike share. It was very interesting. Just to wind up, maybe we could get particularly speculative here. How do you think self-driving cars are going to affect our transportation systems? My favorite thing about it is that they'll reduce accidents. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, I hope they reduce accidents. They're not exactly my area of expertise, but that's what everybody says. My, more in my area of expertise, what I'm interested in is I've tried to stress the difference between um, like city-level congestion, where there's intersections and, and there's um, lanes that meet each other, and freeway congestion, which is like bottlenecks and queues of cars spilling back. I think that it can have a big influence on the freeways. I'm not sure if it will have as big of an influence on city streets. That creates an interesting difference among places whereby maybe like you're in Houston and self-driving cars change the scope of life because you in LA because you can drive on all these freeways at near free flow speeds even with lots of people using the freeways. Whereas maybe like in a city like London where the freeways are not a very big deal, maybe they won't have that big of a difference. Because ultimately, you've got several people coming into an intersection at the same time. It's like one goes, and then another goes, and then another goes. You know, it's like, what does the self-driving car really have to add? Mm-hmm. I'm skeptical about whether or not they'll be as game-changing for city congestion as for um, freeway congestion. Yeah, that makes sense. So buy LA real estate. Buy Houston. <laughs> buy Houston real estate. Right next to us. Right next to an exit. (laughs) (laughs) Good advice. From a data perspective, like one of the things that I think will happen in like our lifetime that's pretty important is that like if you look at traffic engineering right now, it's a branch of engineering, but you can't apply all the same techniques that you would apply in a factory or uh, managing all of your servers at Amazon and such like that because you're largely ignorant of what's happening all the time. Like they'll open a road, uh, open a new road or something based on long-term demand things or like sometimes occasional measurements or something like that, but you don't know what's happening everywhere all the time. The traffic signaling patterns, the cycle lengths and the offsets and such will be based on historic data because we don't have detectors on every single city street. But maybe in the future, we'll have some kind of cheap detectors that can go on every street And maybe they'll be able to detect pedestrians and bicyclists and make priority for them. So the traffic signals will be able to have pretty advanced, maybe even AI running them to really move a lot more people intelligently. And traffic engineering will be more like the kind of control science that you would see like in factory processes or in um, quantitative finance, uh, where you can apply very complex mathematics or artificial intelligence to to improve things. But the first step is you have to actually know what's going on. I'm excited about the next 20 years. And that, that's mainly why is that we actually finally get to become like classic engineers. Yeah, it's really inspiring uh, what the opportunities are going to be over the next uh, decade or two. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunity for machine learning and AI to come into the space. And, and then also con- control theory. If, True. I don't know if you're – so it's all pretty exciting. Well, Lewis, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really interesting for me, and uh, I think for the listeners will really enjoy it as well. Oh, thanks for having me, Kyle. I'm going to encourage everyone to go over to satosa.io and check out some of your work there as well as look in the show notes for links to the rest of the stuff we discussed. More on this episode, visit dataskeptic.com. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher.